Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey NATO, a loose discussion of travel, adventure, diving, gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 59, and we thank you for listening. We have a little bit of show housekeeping right up at the top that I'm going to get out of the way. So the first step is, is we're making a few changes just so that the show's a lighter lift for me, personally. Um, I'm kind of entering what will likely be a busier phase in my work life for the foreseeable future, and I really don't want a scenario where I can't get a show out every two weeks. So with that in mind, sometime in the near future, if you go to thegraynado.com, you'll no longer get to our normal website. Uh, you know, when we're not doing something like the sh- like the uh, supporter bundles, there really isn't a lot of value in having that website. It's just there. It's a second place that I have to put and publish the show notes. The site has a cost associated with it. So we're just going to go back to using just the simplicity of the SoundCloud page. So you can always get to this, the exact same show notes and show description by just going to the description area in SoundCloud or in pretty much any podcast app I've ever used. So there shouldn't be any real change there. But for those of you who do go to the website to see the show notes, you'll have to click a little bit more to get to uh, the nested notes in each episode. And on top of that, we're having some trouble just kind of keeping up with the general level of communication between listeners and Jason and myself. So for simplicity, if you would like us to reply, please send an email. So that's thegraynado at gmail.com. Obviously, we do our best with comments, but the DMs on Instagram are just a very difficult sort of bit of technology. They don't work that well for keeping track of, of various levels of communication. Email is a lot easier. So please, if you're expecting us to reply, thegraynado at gmail.com, I reply to every single email unless it's spam. And lastly, Jason and I have one request moving forward. We're at episode 59 now. Uh, obviously we've been doing this for a while. If you've been enjoying the show for a while and you haven't left a review, uh, preferably on iTunes, but wherever you can leave a review, if you've been enjoying the show for a while and you haven't, we would just ask, just take two minutes and leave a review for the show. It really helps the show grow in terms of how it's populated on iTunes and on other uh, podcasting channels. So, you know, you'd give an okay Uber driver five stars. Why not your TGN buddies? Uh, and a big thanks to everyone who has already reviewed. So I think that's all the show housekeeping. Jason, how's it going? Good. Yeah. Busy days indeed. Um, uh, For sure. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully some of these uh, sort of tweaks to the, the, the protocol for TGN will, uh, will lighten your lift a bit. But uh, we're, both, we're both between trips. You know, it seems like a distant memory when we'd kind of be able to leisurely take uh, a few hours every couple of weeks and record. And, and now we're sort of fitting it in between between world travel, which is, you know, I'm not complaining. It isn't a bad thing. It's all good stuff. Zero complaints. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just a question of there's, I don't really like any redundancy. Yeah. And while the website was helpful when we were doing things like the, uh, the supporter bundles at this point, I don't see any use for it. I think it doubles up the amount of work that's going into it. And, uh, and I, I just, I don't want to do it anymore. So it's about that easy. And, uh, and yeah, I think, uh, I think especially with all the travel, and you know, just trying to focus on things that pay rent and that that kind of thing. I don't want the show to become a second or a third level priority. I want to be able to maintain uh, where it is currently. So I think this is a, a a way to kind of invest in that. Yeah, right. So how have things been? You're uh, you're back from Bonaire. I'm back from Italy. It's actually been a little bit since we got back. And then by the time this comes out, 
uh, I think we'll both be back from another trip. So it's one of these things with the the lag on the podcasting is is a little bit strange for talking about trips. But how was Bonaire? <laughs> yeah, we're always talking about a trip that's uh, that has, hasn't happen, happened yet. Has happened, then, yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah, Bonaire was great. You know, it's uh, one one great thing about that place is it's uh, it's extremely predictable in terms of kind of weather and the experience, just based on the fact we've been there a few times and. Uh, and the weather is reliably good, but uh, it was good. It was busy. We had uh, six dive days um, and uh, brought along uh, five dive watches to kind of photograph and, and dive with uh, three kind of officially for for Hodinkee reviews that will be coming out in the next few months. And then um, uh, Gashani wore uh, the, the docks of Poseidon for, for most of the week. And, and I had a, uh, the Certina um, that I saw at Basel World just to kind of try out. So that was fun. We did uh, hooked up with a guy from VIP Diving. He's actually the owner. His name is Boss Noy, and um, I had met him over the ether uh, last year because um, uh, he's kind of a watch nut, and he had seen an article that I did on Hodinkee about diving in Bonaire, and and we met up and chatted watches last November. And so this time we arranged to go out on a boat dive with with him and and one of his dive guides and chartered a boat and went over to the small island that's unoccupied. That's just across from. Bonaire itself, it's called Klein Bonaire, which means small Bonaire. And we did a couple of boat dives, which was uh, a, a nice experience. It was different. The reef is a little more untouched and, and a little bit wilder, a little steeper walls, and the coral's a little more lush. So it was it was fun, you know, after six trips to Bonaire, always doing the same kind of shore diving sites, it was fun to to kind of get out on a boat and, uh, and try something new. So that was fun. I'll certainly point to those articles, those watch reviews as they come out in the coming months, uh, we'll mention it on the show. But, uh, you know, if you were following me on Instagram at all last week, you probably saw a lot of photos of iguanas and old Jeeps and dive watches <laughs> and that sort of thing. So, Perfect. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I'm glad it was a good trip. I uh, I was in uh, roughly, I mean, I think we left around the same time. I was in Italy for a few days. I spoke about it briefly on the last episode to, uh, to cover the kind of press launch for the Lamborghini Urus SUV. Yeah. And uh, that was great. Really fast trip. I guess it was two. We were there for two nights, but I think I, like I left at about 3 a.m. the second night. So we just kind of stayed up and saw a little bit of Rome. Huh. We, I guess I did maybe six laps of the Urus on Valle Lunga's track. Yeah. And then, you know, like in a lead follow scenario, it wasn't just open lapping. Right. Uh, I mean, the thing's real fast <laughs> i'm sure uh if you've ever been in something like a cayenne turbo i i would you know it's it's faster than that it's louder than that it's a little bit more wild than that yeah um and that's a very high bar for an suv yeah and uh and i can fit in the back with somebody sitting in front of me oh like the back seats are designed for someone up to six three. Oh wow uh so i thought that was like probably not going to be the case and then i asked uh another writer to sit in the front and actually adjust the seat to where he would be and i sat in the back and there was enough room so that's pretty surprising because it has quite a sloping roof line yeah that's on those uh so lots of space a good trunk all that kind of thing i I drove maybe for about an hour the roads kind of around valilunga on even the 23 inch wheels and it was still quite comfortable uh and it has like a ton of settings right so you can go from comfort to sport to race to snow gravel sand oh wow all these other settings and that but as you go from like if you're in comfort it's pretty quiet and like docile and it doesn't like leap forward if you get on the gas that kind of thing but if you're in sport or race that exhaust is kind of always going yeah and it just takes off i mean it's very like 
It's 650 horsepower. It's 628 foot-pounds of torque. Wow. And uh, it's, a, you know, it's a twin-turbo V8 that they share the block from the Cayenne. And then the turbos, the heads, intakes, all those things are, are bespoke to the Urus's use. Yeah. And it's just an incredible... The, the torque delivery down low is really good. So it you don't really notice how heavy the vehicle is. And then, I don't know, if, for those of you listening who care about things like brakes... Uh, the front brakes are 440 millimeters, huh. which has to be the biggest brake I've ever seen. <laughs> and on the track, you'd have no idea you were driving something that weighed for nearly 4,900 pounds yeah. because it would break so hard. Wow. Uh, so I, I had a really interesting time with it. And uh, Lamborghini is, it's, it's literally a new market that they're pushing for. So I didn't realize the percentage was this high, but they're they're saying that they're expecting like nearly seventy percent of Urus buyers huh. to be brand new to Lamborghini. Oh wow! And at a two hundred thousand dollar premium for a car like this, before you start checking boxes, yeah, it 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 will theoretically double the brand's output. They made something like thirty eight or thirty nine hundred cars last year. Huh. And they're expecting to make that many Urus. Wow! Now I mean they're they're currently back ordered for two years. Oh wow! So they're not really in a lot of struggle. Uh, yeah. I, I think that the while the market who wants the fast SUV might not be the same person who wants the fast supercar. Mm-hmm. There's it seems to be both markets. So I had a yeah. blast driving it. It's definitely the kind of thing that I think would be really interesting. They make a version that's on more tire, so like I think twenties or twenty ones. Yeah, and it's it's uh it's like your you know because Pirelli has made like nine or seven different bespoke tires for the Urus. Yeah. So you have various options depending on where you live and the snow and, and that kind of thing. I think it'd be an interesting car to to kind of experience at like a base level that like whatever you get for two hundred grand on a softer tire yeah. as like an actual everyday vehicle. Right. But I mean all of them have that engine. And <laughs> uh and the and the, the you know, the trick suspension and, and all the fancy differential and uh you know, all the ride balancing and all that kind of thing. So so we had the the track time. We had some time to kind of drive these small Italian B roads around the track, and then we had two laps, so like maybe three minutes on this dirt course they had set up. How was that? Uh, it was good. I mean, it would have taken me twenty laps to even know where I was going. Oh yeah. But they gave you two laps, and then they had one of their like chief instructors drive a lap to show you how fast you could have gone if you knew what you were doing. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was fine. I mean, I I think if you if you'd had a, if I'd like a, again if I if you had way more laps, it either would have resulted in yeah, you'd drive a lot faster or you'd have an off. I mean, you just leave the track at some point. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's kind of like a rally course and you're throwing up dirt and sliding and, and you know, getting some sideways stuff in and, and, and all that's great. And Rome was lovely. And uh, and yeah, it seems like a while ago. It was like a, maybe a week and a half ago. Not, <laughs> qu- not quite a week and a half ago. And then uh, just after this weekend. So again, by the time anyone's listening to this, I will have been home for a few days. But I go to uh, Austria to drive the the new Bentley Continental GT. So to, uh, another show from now, I'll have some information on that. I mean, I don't know. It's not going to be bad information. Like that's going to be a dream. Yeah. A dream kind of experience. I love that car, but uh, th- that's the next one on the list for me. Uh, what's next for you? You're back uh, more diving, right? Yeah, I've got, um, what am I, nine or 10 days at home and then uh, I leave next Tuesday. So yeah, a week before this episode even airs. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm off to uh, Revilla Hijedo, which is a, a, an archipelago of, of islands in the eastern Pacific um, that you actually visited last year on as part of your Clipperton expedition. Mm-hmm. And um, this is with uh, with Blancpain. It's a 
a nine-day trip that originates in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, and it's on a uh, liveaboard boat, so a, a large boat called the Nautilus Undersea, which happens to be the same boat you were on. Yep. Uh, I was invited by um, by Blanc Pond CEO Mark Hayek, who, if if people don't know, he's a fairly avid diver. He He's actually the guy who was kind of behind the design of that wacky X Fathoms uh, dive watch that they have. And, um, you know, over his tenure at the company, he's he's done a lot of kind of crazy diving with uh, with free divers and, and with kind of world renowned uh, divers and, and kind of really pushed the, the 50 Fathoms side of the business, which which I've enjoyed observing. Um, it's nice to see, you know, someone at the top level of, of these brands that are making dive watches actually get in the water. So it'll be, it'll be fun to meet him and, and dive with him, but I'm really excited because uh, another guy who's going to be on the trip is Laurent Belesta, who is a, oh, wow. a, a French uh, underwater photographer who, uh, if you happen to pick up the latest uh, issue of National Geographic, there is a, an article by him with some just spectacular photos of this uh, shark feeding frenzy that he was a part of in Fakarava in the, uh, the French South Pacific last year and it's it, it's been featured a few times we talked about it i think last year uh when we were doing a final notes about the gumbessa expedition that these guys were on right and they had done a series of video logs and and uh, i think we linked to those but um he's i think he's up there with with some of the best uh, underwater photographers that i've i've seen their work and um so he's gonna be on the trip with a couple of his his team members and it's just going to be a thrill to kind of observe him working and see the gear that he brings. And I have a book that that Blanc Pond gave me at uh, at Basel World that that has all of his photography in it. And I'll talk about that a little later in the final notes. But um, should be really exciting. So it's a it's a nine day trip. We'll be doing four dives a day uh, on the various uh, sort of islands and rocks of of the archipelago there, um, where it's kind of prime season for for mantas and and schooling sharks and. Um, all manner of marine life. So uh, I'll be shooting a lot of photos and video and, and you know, just uh, just soaking it all in. So I'm, I'm pretty excited. The, the trip actually finishes back in Mexico, of course, and, and Blanc Pan is hosting an event in Punta Mita, which is on the Pacific coast. They're doing one of their ocean commitment events um, that you're going to. Um, yep, I'll be at that one. But uh, I'll be um, disembarking at Cabo San Lucas again and then uh, flying home, so I'm actually uh, skipping the event to to fly back home after the the dive trip. But uh, yeah, should be um, plenty to report uh, uh, in our next episode. I'll be back on the on the 17th, so I'm leaving on the 9th. So it's a it's a long trip. It's That's kind of awesome. off the off the grid, and uh, yeah, so very very exciting. I think you're going to love it. I had uh, I had a great time on the boat, and obviously everyone who's listening and listened through the the Clipperton episodes, uh, you know, knows that, but. Uh, you know, we had a few days diving in Socorro, which is one of the four islands in uh, the Riviera Gigueros. And, uh, you know, just incredible diving. The mantas are, that's an experience that like you can't, uh, I can't really capture in words. Yeah. Like it, every time I think about it, I smile. Like it's a, it's, it was a really fun thing. Lots of sharks, lots of interesting fish. You get these Mexican hawkfish that huh. have like exposed teeth huh. and they're, they're kind of, they kind of come at you a bit. Yeah. That one's not not always as much fun, but there always <laughs> seemed to be a couple following you. They didn't. They seemed kind of territorial. Yeah. And uh, and then hopefully you get to dive the boiler, which is a pretty amazing dive site. And then I think you're also going to get to Roca Partida, which is you know on, on the far side of the chain from the mainland. Yeah. If you think of it, in it's further uh, west. 
Yeah. Uh, so we didn't go that far. You know, we had uh, Socorro's where you check in with the Navy. So we went to Socorro and dove around Socorro. And then we dove on uh, one of the other islands, which uh, which I'm blanking on the name of currently. Uh, just all of it was really, really fun, uh, really accessible, great visibility, all that kind of thing. And, you know, you get some random stuff. We saw some big uh, uh, yellowtail. And oh, wow. we saw some huge dolphins. These big, like, steroidy looking dolphins came <laughs> through very quickly. And then just lots of mantas, lots of white tips. Nice. Uh, uh, you know, ton, tons of the, like, the silkies and the um, silver tips and, you know, lots of great sharks. And then, obviously, there's there's a few scenarios there where you can see hammerheads. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. At the right, right time of the year. So I, I think you should be at the same time of the year. And I didn't see any, but a couple other people on the trip uh, at, at the canyon is what the dive site is called. Saw some hammerheads. So. Oh, nice. But that one's deep and not the most interesting topographically. It's huh. one of the harder dives we did, but huh. uh, I, th- I think you'd enjoy it nonetheless. It's interesting timing because um, I, I just uh, received in the mail yesterday um, the the book of photography that, uh, that uh, your your folks, Julie and... Michelle from from the Clipperton expedition. Oh yeah, put together. So that just came in the mail yesterday. There's a great photo of you in there. Actually, two photos that I saw. And, yeah, I got um, lucky. I got in there a couple times. Yeah, and uh, so it was, it was it was this weird sort of timing because you know we've been talking about you know we've talked about Clipperton off and on over the past year, and then mm-hmm. um, this trip is coming up where you've been, and and then the book arrived, and then I got National Geographic in the mail, and here's this article by Belesta. So it's it's kind of got me really nicely primed for for this experience. So nice should be, confluence. Should be great. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. And yeah. So on the topic of uh, photography and books and things like that, uh, one thing I was, I was tempted just to put this in show notes, but I feel like we don't typically put like several hundred dollar items in show notes. So I'll, I'll put it here. I bought this uh, new lens for my Sony and anyone who follows me on Instagram will have seen the lens and some of the photos I've taken with it. But it's this uh, Korean lens. It's called a... There's two brands that make it. So it's just whatever you can find. They're the same lens from what I can tell. It's either Sam Yang or Rokinon. Obviously, this will be in the show notes. It's a 12 millimeter mirrorless lens, plastic. Uh, so it's a small... like It's an E-mount. You go directly to the Sony. You don't need an adapter. And it uh, maximum aperture is F2. And it's... Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Like I just like I can't I can't tell you the last time I enjoyed not only a piece of camera gear that I mean Canadian I paid three fifty for it. Oh, that's really and, good. And uh, it's uh, it's even less. Uh, you know, it's two eighty if you just wanted to buy it directly from B and H for the same thing. That's again for the Sony E mount. So any of the Sony E mount cameras would run this. They also make it in several other mounts. Yeah. So if you have a mirrorless camera, or I think it also functions on, like I think they make Canon and Nikon mounts for it as well. Huh. Twelve millimeter is is eighteen millimeter on the Sony platform, and at, and being f two and an ultra wide, you pretty much just shoot at infinity. Oh yeah. So, so like it doesn't matter that the lens has no autofocus; it's a manual lens only. It's kind of like buying a vintage lens, but it's brand new. Yeah. The lens is super popular with people who do um architecture and astral photography because it's a it's a very straight and true lens uh, yeah. with v- very sharp at the edges hmm. and i've been walking around vancouver you know just kind of taking random shots with it and i'm absolutely in love with it huh. it's super fun to shoot that wide it looks i think it looks great and then because it's an f2 and the minimum focusing distance is only like it's like it's i think it's 10 inches oh yeah and uh, so you can you can do these weirdly close. Uh, sorry, it's seven point nine inches. Hmm. You can do these weirdly close kind of wide macros. 
Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I have a little collection called like Wide Eye on Instagram. You know, you can make those collections of stuff that you've put in stories. Yeah. So if anyone wants to see photos that came kind of specifically from that lens and examples of the range, which is what's remarkable, you know, is, is that you can take a photo of something that's quite close and it's super sharp. And you're just using focus peaking on the Sony where as things are in focus, they go kind of bright red. Oh, yeah on, yeah. on the screen. So it's yeah. really easy to shoot. But most of the time, you're just shooting at infinity. So it makes no difference. Right. Like if I'm taking a picture of a mountain or buildings or something, it's just infinity. Like yeah. anything that's more than 10 feet away from you is in focus. Yeah. And it's uh, it's really fun. And, you know, it's super fast. So you can shoot kind of in low light and at night and not with crazy ISOs. And uh, th- this is a real sweet spot for me in photography because these cameras make it so easy to shoot with a uh, manual lens. Yeah that it there's no real loss scenario for something like I, I don't know that I would want to go manual if I was shooting portraits or weddings or something like that where there's a lot on the line but for you know for things that you can just basically fire at infinity or use the man the focus peaking to take your time with the photo right it's great it's a uh, it's light it's plasticky and uh, I think it's going to be really good for travel and it's one of these things where like if you lost it or broke it it's, <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's like the the other lens I use for my Sony is that Zeiss lens, which is a couple thousand dollars to replace. Yeah, yeah so. it sounds like a good walking around kind of street photography lens. Um, the camera itself is light, so you know you're not not carrying a bunch of stuff around. And, and as you mentioned last time, the the paracord strap probably suits this whole setup really well. Yeah, piece of cake. And the the only thing it's not going to work out really well for is people. Wide angle lenses typically make people look pretty strange. Yeah. Sometimes you can put them right in the center of the frame and then crop it. But yeah. it, it doesn't do like facial proportions that well. Your friends yeah. won't like the photos you take of them. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> get them get them fifty feet back and kind of pointing at a mountain or something like that. That's probably your best bet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, anything else new for you? No, I mean there will be next time, but uh, no, as of now, I'm just. Yeah. Did you see this? Uh, the Halios Roldorf Limited Edition. Oh, it looks so cool. It looks Isn't really it good. Neat? Have you seen it in person? I haven't, so there's no dials that exist yet. Otherwise, I would have already shot it and written it. Yeah. Basically, what they've done here is they've made a custom three-dial version of the Seaforth. So it's the same Seaforth case that everybody knows. Mm -hmm. That isn't changed, but um, Halios, obviously a Vancouver-based brand, and Roldorf, a Vancouver-based brand, both of which we've had on the show, they designed together these really beautiful uh, dials. So it's a new dial design with a 3, 6, and 9 marker, and two of the versions have cream kind of center circular elements. Yeah. So it looks very different from a Seaforth, but it's still at the same time very much a Seaforth. It's only a fixed bezel option. Mm-hmm. You can get the watch in steel or DLC. And then there's either a green black dial, a green cream dial, or a charcoal cream dial, all of which look incredible. Uh, you know, I'm really excited to see them in person, but I think that they nailed that super dark, not overly saturated green. Yeah, at least in the in the uh, renders that they have so far, pricing is just shy of a thousand dollars. So it's a little bit more than a normal Seaforth, but they're also even more limited. So, so the other cool thing is, you know, it's going via a pre order. It's fifty percent down is what they're required, and then you're getting a watch that not only has uh, a different movement than that your standard Seaforth. This uses an Eta twenty eight ninety two A two. Good movement. Uh, yeah, so it's arguably Etta's best three-hand movement. And then on top of that, the watch is actually assembled in Vancouver by Roldorf. I think that's really neat. That's, that's yeah, a, yeah, I agree. So, I mean, it, 
it, you're looking at something, uh, I guess the basic price for a steel case with any dial is 985 USD. And then if you want to go with the DLC case, you're looking at 1035. Hmm. So there is a premium over the standard Seaforth, which is more, more in the range of, say, 700 to $750. But for that premium, you're getting an entirely different dial design, the optional DLC case, the Vancouver uh, assembly, and the, uh, I would say, considerable upgrade in movement. Yeah. Uh, I think these look really good. It's one that as soon as soon as they have one to see, I'll be attempting to shoot it and then get some coverage, uh, hopefully for key on that. Uh, you know, obviously that, that depends on, uh, on when the watch is available. And if they all pre-order immediately, then maybe there's not really any use. I, I don't know. You know how these things are. Right. Um, and then they're also offering uh, either a black leather strap or the Erica's original uh, oh, yeah. black op- black ops in either a brushed or a dlc finish so there's there's some cool options there i hope that uh, anyone who's interested is able to get in on the pre-order um and and that there's maybe still a few left by the time uh, this episode goes up probably you know the better part of uh a week week and a bit before or after the pre-order so wow yeah and i can't wait to see these start to trickle out into the world and get onto uh instagram real world photos it's uh it's it, the, the the renders look so amazing i just yeah Really they cool. they have a they have a more classic vibe and and it now and it and it's one that's kind of in disconnected from the Seaforth's kind of original diver layout. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little bit field watch. It has like a little bit of like a a British military. Yeah. Like feel to it. I I think they look great. I think the the combination of the DLC with the cream and the green. Yeah. Yeah. That might be the winner. It's hard to say. Yeah. That sort of dual color dial configuration is something that I would love to see more brands do. I just think there just isn't a lot of that around and it it reminds me a little bit the style of the watch is completely different but i don't know if you're familiar with i, I think they call it i think tudor made one back in the 50s or something it was called they called it they nicknamed it the tuxedo it was like black okay. black on the outside and white you know uh, sphere in the middle um i've seen a couple of like an excelsior park chronograph with that sort of black outer ring with the white in the oh, middle oh yeah Sure, um, sure. Just it, it's a neat look that you just don't see much of. So it's 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 really cool to see Helios doing. It makes the uh, markers really punchy. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. at pictures of these of a tuxedo dial tutor. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's cool. And it looks like they made date just like a one one six two three four tuxedo yeah. dial. Yeah, neat. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, good good on them for that. I think it's uh, I you know, I'm I live in Vancouver. I love this city. Big Halios fan, big Roldor fan. They've both been on the show. I, I just like to see that they've gotten together and they've made something that I don't have to be like, well, they made it. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I think it looks good. I think they did well with the design and, and I think it's hard to iterate upon a successful design like the Seaforth. Every, obviously, tons of people like the way the Seaforth looks. Yeah. And I think this is both different and still very good. So kudos to them on that. And I hope it. I hope it's an absolute smash hit for them. Yeah, great. Well, maybe we should jump into the main topic, huh? Yeah, so today's main topic is inspired by a question we got from a listener named Camille in Amsterdam. Camille, thanks very much for your question. And uh, Camille gave us a fairly long question, but if we boil it down, he's asking, uh, according to which rules, if any, have your collection of watches developed over the years? And did you kind of chase specific aspects, color, case size, brand, style of watch, or did you just kind of follow whims and your taste at the time and that sort of thing? He's, he's kind of trying to develop a, the idea of like, a, is there a logical pattern in a collection or is it more just the output or the, the proof of some insane kind of uh, meandering following your bliss sort of thing through watches? 
And uh, I, I think it's an interesting question. And, you know, we've spoken about collecting before on the show, but I think this is a, a, a good way to kind of readdress that. And, and I think it is kind of a, a changing kind of living thing for people, what they like, what they're into, you know, maybe as they, they learn or, or develop taste, obviously things are going to change. So, uh, Jason, wh- where would you say you started in watches? How, how would you characterize collecting when you were first getting into it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess when I got into watches, um, I, I've I've always kind of resisted being called a collector. I don't, I've never had a kind of a strategy or in, intent to mm-hmm. own more than, well, realistically, I, I never had the intent to even own more than one watch. It's just that, um, as as many people can relate to, you know, you buy one that you like, and then as you kind of dig deeper into the hobby and learn more about watches, you mm-hmm. see others that are similar, and then they sort of branch out, and you see something else, and you sort of accumulate but I've never had sort of a strategy to kind of amass a collection I've never had a an idea to have a, a theme and and I think you know the word though I you could say I have a collection in kind of the strictest sense of the word collection um, the word collecting sort of feels very static almost like you're collecting dead butterflies or something and um, I, I just kind of tend to keep accumulating a, a, a small collection of watches that that I just like to wear and use and um, when, of course, when I first got into it, um, you know, back in kind of the, the forum days when I kind of first discovered watches, uh, as we, as so, uh, so many of us do, um, I, I used to just buy and flip and trade and sell just, you know, fairly often. And, um, I would say over the years, if there's only been, if there's been kind of one constant, it's been, uh, a, a pretty heavy focus on, on dive watches, um. I've never really kind of gravitated or, or aspired to own anything like, uh, you know, even like a Datejust or a Paddock or a Vacheron or anything like that. It's always been kind of a kind of more on the affordable end of the spectrum uh, dive right. watches. So what about you? I think you probably started in a similar way, right, with, with kind of dive watches and forums and yeah, for sure. I mean, when I first got into it, it was it was a lot about forums and whatever other people were kind of into on forums is what I bought. And over time, you know, I got kind of just a little bit deeper, maybe in my first year or so of being kind of on the internet side of watch enthusiasm. You've, I found poor man's watch forum and that led to, you know, maybe a half a dozen Orients, you know, and and that led to an SKX 007 and a Black Monster. And then I think my kind of taste for reasonable sized divers was locked in. And then I just started to kind of iterate off of that. So you know, whether it was the birth of some of these micro brands, I had, you know, very early Ocean 7 with the LM2, Oh yeah, uh, early Armidas, early uh, all sorts of stuff. And, and then I think it takes, I think if you're in the scenario where you're kind of buying and selling and buying and selling, you accept the fact that you're going to get things wrong. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a watch that's 47 millimeters, but you've never had it before, you throw it on, it, it feels okay for a couple of days or it's new for a couple of days. And then you realize like, I really wish it was more like the size of an SKX. Yeah. Then that's time to flip it. And I had a Bathies that I really loved. I had, you know, it was these early watches that kind of develop your general taste. Right. And then it, it, then it just takes time and effort of like, either you look at something in an image and you know you're not nuts about it or a friend has one so then you know you're not nuts about it or you buy one and then you know you're not nuts about it but i think in many ways it's like there's weird kind of swirling checklists yeah of like i've never had that i've never had that oh that looks interesting i like the way that looks the design of that is cool like for whatever reason i really like the design of the mundane stuff 
Oh yeah, right. But but I've never owned one. Yeah. For whatever reason, I've just never pulled the trigger. I think I like the way they look, mm-hmm. but I think it's more of an academic appreciation than it is that I think it would suit my wrist. Yeah, that's how I feel about, and we've talked about it before, the, the Max Bill watches of Jungans. It's, for uh, sure. You know, love the look. I've always thought one day I'll have one, and I probably won't. I mean, I just, just realistically, I probably won't have one, and um, that's okay. Um, yeah, w- for would sure. You, would you say that, um, you know, I, I'm guessing you're, you're like me and, and haven't, kind of gone into collecting with the objective of amassing a, a themed collection or certain you know value to them or anything like that but ha, have you been able to kind of over the years hone if you were had some sort of guiding principles about the watches that you have is there sort of an overriding theme to them yeah i mean for me i think i think a lot of my type of collecting and it would be the same way that i would i would collect almost anything is i like to have examples yeah of of things that i like yeah so I adore the Rolex Explorer and Explorer 2 line and I have one and that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um I you know I understand and I really like the obsession of the guys where they have one of every reference. Yeah. And that's their thing is like explorers or just subs or whatever. Yeah. But for the most part I want an example of it. I love GMT watches, I love World Time watches. Um you know at at a at a strong point it really comes down to how the watch wears. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And I think that's a two-sided thing. It's the shape and size of the watch. Yeah. And it's how it makes you feel. So one of those things you can know from a piece of paper, like I think my preference these days is really things not much over 41 millimeters. And I really find there's a certain charm around 38 mm-hmm. that I like quite a bit. And that could just be that I've I've owned mostly new watches. So vintage watches are novel. Yeah. I want to have a skin diver. I like having a pilot's watch. I like having like, you know, something like a Doxa, like I'm wearing the 50th uh, SR now, which is 42 and a half millimeters. Yeah. But because it's kind of a very squared case shape. Yeah. uh, Not that long lug to lug, not unlike the SRP 777, which should be way too big at 44. Mm -hmm. That watch wears beautifully because it's not that much longer than 44 in a lug to lug sense, right? Yeah. So once you kind of have an idea of, of like, well, that will be the right size for my wrist, then it's a question of like, does it appeal at that kind of intangible emotional level? And like, there's not a really a way to explain this to someone who doesn't have this gene or this bad wiring <laughs> where we're like a watch or a car or a beautiful camera or something like that can actually have an effect right. on, on your mood, on your perspective. Yeah, for that moment, I think that people listening to TGN would do get that. So I, I don't think I, I feel like I'm not in a position where I necessarily have to like feel bad or hide that or or, or whatever. Like it, it is what it is. Like you, people love things sometimes, and that comes down to watches as well. And I think a lot of times it's about developing a sense of of what watches kind of fit that appeal. Yeah, or will offer that appeal to you, which is which is I think where it takes a lot of time, and also that. I think that position changes for people over time. Oh, for sure. I, I think, you know, I get a lot of questions about, and I think you do too, from people that ask, what do you think of this watch? Or, or what, what's your personal opinion? Or do you recommend the Pelagos or the Black Bay mm-hmm. or whatever it might be? And, and my kind of canned response that I've gotten used to responding with, and I, I don't want to sound, you know, sort of glib or that I'm dismissing anybody, but... It really, and throughout my kind of collecting quote-unquote career, it's it really does come down to what you like to look at on your wrist. And I have, 100%. I have realized, it, unless you're someone who's in it for, 
investment reasons or you know you want like you mentioned get all the iterations of the explorer or something that's really what it comes down to if you're buying watches to wear which is what i do and i think if there's kind of a theme that i've sort of had consistently um through the past you know 10 years or so it's been watches with visual interest i i like watches that have a bit of quirk to them i, I know you do too but you know watches that have interesting use of color or um, case details like like Bremont I think you know the thing I like about a Bremont is you look at it from any angle and they do something interesting with the texture on the dial of the supermarine or the that triptych case or the position of the crown um, or the hand shape or or a doxa for instance I mean there's just so much to look at with these watches you have this no deco bezel you have the, the dwarf hour hand and this big orange minute hand on some of them and um, the Seaforth, you know, the, uh, I've got the, the blue dial Seaforth, which again, great color. It's interesting when you look at your wrist and that's not to say I don't have my share of kind of black and white sort of military inspired, you know, Submariner and a Speedmaster. But it's funny when I wear those, I, I get the sense that they're classics and I, I appreciate them for what they are, but I tend to not wear them for any length of time. Like I do say a Doxa, which is, is simply because I just like to look at these watches on my wrist. Yeah. It's one of these things where, you know, we do the show long enough, people will actually see our taste change. Yeah. I actually didn't know concretely what, how much I would like a Doxa until I owned one, and now I don't take it off. <laughs> I mean, like, I have, I have a, a small collection, a small and relatively modest collection. It's not an investment collection. Uh, nothing I own could be considered an investment. Like, even, like, I got my EXP2 for very cheap. Yeah. And immediately, like w- within weeks, was on top of Baker with it. Yeah, on on the outside of my sleeve. Like I, I, I mean, like what a watch like that you buy for a few. Th- let's say you buy it for a few thousand dollars, and yeah. then a couple years later, it's worth a few more thousand dollars. I don't care. Yeah, like it. Like I, I don't mean to sound as glib as this sounds, but it's not that hard to come up with a few grand. Right. I could sell that same watch and have that money. Like if that was the scenario. Yeah. Uh, so I just like, I don't, I don't really, uh, I, I'm, I don't have enough skin in the game financially to see any big benefits. Yeah. It's like I dabbled in cryptocurrency, but only, you know, hundreds of dollars. So even if things went kind of nuts, I'll mm. have a few thousand dollars. Like, yeah, the, it's not a game changing scenario. I like in many ways, not always, but in many ways, if you want to invest in something like watches or, or cars or, or whatever, you have to have a fair amount in the game to be able to see a big return when things go your way. Yeah. And that's, that's just not at all my interest in, uh, in watches. And I mean, as, as far as your, as far as your taste goes, what, what are you, so you mentioned the Doxa, but what do you, what do you actually wear these days that you have um, a, a, of your collection? I, I wear Doxas a lot. I mean, I, I probably Doxas and Bremonts and then my, uh, my Submariner that I got for my 40th birthday, just the no date sub. I, I wear that, in kind of regular rotation, but kind of day in and day out, it tends to be um, Doxas a lot lately. I'm kind of in this dive mode, you know, the early part of this year. Um, but the MB2 got a lot of wrist time over the winter. You know, I talked about on the last show, I recently acquired that vintage T-Graph, and so now I have two of those. And that is such an incredibly satisfying watch to wear. And I'm not really a kind of your stereotypical sort of vintage watch collector. I sort of have happened upon a few vintage watches and and they were good examples at good prices. And, and I just like the story of the T-Graph that I recently got. And I, I like that watch. It just, to me, it represents something almost intangible. Um, 
from that era. I think it kind of represents the late 60s diving adventure, quirky, big and, and kind of bold. And uh, and so I do enjoy wearing uh, the T-Graph uh, a fair amount, although I've got it in for service now. But um, so, yeah, it's, 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 you know what it has come down to, too? And I, you and I have talked about it. You touched on it a little earlier was the, this idea of uh, comfort and size and, and the doxes, especially these thin case 50th anniversary size are just, I just don't want to take it off. It's the same reason why it's the same reason why when I wear my Supermarine 2000, which I don't do as often because it's it's a big heavy watch, um, I kind of get this sigh of relief when I put on something smaller, like like a sub Submariner or something. They they just feel so good. Yeah, comfort's a big play, and and I mean, I like I I never would have predicted that I would like this Doxa, the Sea Rambler that I've got this much, but the case is a huge part of that. Yeah. It works on any strap. It's always comfortable. I have a seven-inch wrist. Yours is a, a little bit bigger than that. They just wear really well, and they have a charm that's not like any other watch. It's a very distinctive, unique sort of appeal. Yeah. And they are, you know, there's always, an, in, in in everything in life, watches or anything, food, it doesn't matter. There's always some intrinsic value to weird. Yeah. Or different than the last thing you had or war or whatever just a change right yeah like i may own and this is a point of fact i may own the same t-shirt like 20 times but it's in 20 <laughs> different colors oh yeah yeah right and yeah. the and like don't get me wrong i like the black and the white t-shirt just fine but i also like the ones that are like kind of a strange shade of blue that doesn't really seem to match anything mm-hmm like that that's it's just the way that I'm wired and I think it's the way that a lot of like I think most people are wired you know it's it's it it's that uh Francis Bacon's there is no beauty that hath not some strangeness to its proportion yeah, yeah. and I think that can be applied to nature that can be applied to cars and watches and people and and I think it can be applied to the appeal of of pretty much anything there's always an intangible element that could just be that you were surprised by it that's what I like a lot about movies is when I get surprised by them. Yeah. And it, it I, I'm, you know, a compulsively I rewatch movies and I still like the moments where I remember being surprised. <laughs> right. Uh, not like a jump scare. Like I don't like scary movies, but when they do something that I wouldn't have been able to conceive of as I was planning this scene in my mind. Yeah. Whether it's a turn or a line or some tension that pays off, whatever. I love that kind of stuff, and I think uh, I think there's an element of that in, in, that can be kind of drawn through a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I've noticed um, is for a while you had that Zin 144 chronograph, but you don't currently own a chronograph, do you? Uh, just the aerospace. Oh, which the aerospace, doesn't, right. Doesn't necessarily count. Yeah. I mean, like like I was saying, like I you know I have a, a, a I think of nicely varied uh, small collection of watches and i'm pretty much only wearing three of them ever yeah yeah uh i love my exp2 it's essentially a perfect watch uh yeah. could easily be a one watch scenario for me if i you know wasn't uh essentially working in the watch industry at some level yeah and uh i adore this doxa it's not going anywhere it will definitely cause me to buy more doxas especially anything with this thin case i'd love to get a thin case uh vintage yeah at some point yeah and then the seaforth which is another example of it's just the right size, it's just the right comfort, and it's a little bit strange. Yeah, right. It works on a ton of different straps. All of these watches work on NATOs. They all work on a leather strap. They all work on like a mesh bracelet. So whatever I'm kind of feeling, right, 
and 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 you know like i i went for a walk yesterday to a, a big park in vancouver and, and i walked for most of the day and and took i was wearing the docks and i took a picture of it it was this beautiful sunny day and it's like it's like summer for your wrist <laughs> it's so true there's there's something like so warm and like appealing and old world and simple and and it's not even remotely technologically advanced yeah yeah it, you know, it, it's it's just good. It's it's hard to capture kind of why sometimes these things have that appeal, but I, I'm doing my best. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and, and sometimes somebody will say, you know, so what's next? What's on your list? What what do you want to get? What's your grail? And Yeah, it's a good place to go. I, I used to have that. I used to have watches that I aspired to own or a grail watch. Um, I can't say that I've really wanted, I mean, it sounds terrible, but I, I that I've really wanted a watch in quite a while now, like that I'm, I'm actually actively seeking or saving for or hunting for, um, you know, they're, they're kind of the watches that, uh, I've got a handful of keepers and then I've got some that kind of, uh, satisfy a whim and then they move on. I either sell or trade or gift them to somebody and, and, uh, for sure. and it, it just feels right. And, um, but I, I can't say that there's anything out there that I'm really, you know, questing for. And, uh, I guess my chronograph question for you was, you know, I've I've seen you, you know, I think you borrowed one of your friends' uh, vintage Speedmasters in the past, and yeah, um, you know, we've we've talked about uh, you know various uh, you know old Breitlings or you know things like this, and I, I guess my my chronograph question I was kind of leading to was, is there something like a Speedmaster or something that you feel like you want to own one day for for any given reason? I, I would definitely buy a racing dial Speedmaster. Yeah, but they're too expensive now. Yeah, I mean, I I balked at them when they were four thousand dollars. Yeah, and that was a mistake. Um, you know, like so many of us have made. Yeah, uh, but the you know the the two thousand and four Japan LE, which is a modern thirty five seventy, but with the kind of Mark II style race style. Yeah, it's a pretty cool watch. Definitely my favorite Speedmaster. Uh, and then there's some even stranger, rare, far more expensive ones. Phillips has a, a really fantastic uh, nineteen sixty eight with a prototype race dial. Hmm. it will have sold two days before this episode goes up you know assuming it makes whatever reserve it might have yeah but it's part of their geneva auctions so i'll throw the link in the show notes to that so you can at least see what it went for probably i think they said the estimate was somewhere around twenty thousand swiss francs but it it has like it's a matte black dial step dial and it has a uh it has red actual red accents not the maroon orange yeah the red and then red uh hour and minute hand (laughs) jeez so it looks incredible. So something like that, I would be 100% on board to have and own and to cherish, but I'm not spending that kind of money on a watch. Yeah. I got other things I like to spend my money on, and, and I don't think these watches are necessarily going anywhere. I think it's an ebb and a flow scenario. So right. may, maybe someday I'll, I'll be able to have that race style. But uh, for now, uh, I like a chronograph academically, Yeah. but I don't actually, like, I don't actually use them. Right. I, I, lo- I loved that Zen. Yeah. And then I realized I had like three other GMTs that I was wearing more commonly mm-hmm. or not necessarily GMTs, but watches that could do two time zones. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, with that one being a, a, an independent 24 hour hand and non jumping local, it's a little bit of a compromised feature set for someone who travels as much as I do mm-hmm. versus something like an Explorer two or even just a 12 hour bezel yeah. again, where you're, you're able to change it without really changing the timing of the watch. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, that, that one went and, uh, the owner still, you know, the guy I sold it to still has it. And, and we have a deal where if he decides he doesn't want it anymore, I can buy it back before he lists it. So we'll see how that goes. 
maybe I'll end up with that 144 again. It was a that's a very cool watch. You just you can't keep them all. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I'm even now I have several in my collection that if it wasn't for the work of selling them, I would sell them. Yeah. Selling's a pain. I, it's a huge pain yeah. and and I love selling to friends because then I can take a little bit less money and I know that the watch goes somewhere that's good and 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 all these sorts of things and you don't have to worry about like a bunch of shipping issues taking photos putting it on watch you see getting crazy low balls all these things like the, the selling aspect is not fun no and it's something that i'll probably only do under duress moving <laughs> forward because i probably in the first few years of this hobby bought and sold well over 100 watches yeah which i know i like i've met now lots of other enthusiasts who not only do that but then have continued that process for years right they've been through a thousand watches yeah in six or seven years or something like that yeah and Kudos. I think that's amazing. I think that they, they, their understanding of the market is so strong at a product level Yeah, that I, I, I think that's fantastic, but it's also a part-time job. Right. It is. Yeah. And my life already has several part-time jobs, so it's probably not, not time to accept another. When I was less busy, I was buying and selling and spending a lot more time on the sales forums and things like that. And now I, I don't know, like I haven't been cruising WatchRecon for a while. Like you, I've yeah. been very happy if not feeling essentially spoiled right yeah. by the watches that i have yeah you know i'm always kind of subtly on the lookout for cheap skin divers mm-hmm. that's something where i could see owning like a, a bunch of them yeah um but even them the the pricing's going up you know people like vintage watches people like vintage dive watches yeah so it's not the same thing where there's a lot of just floating around at two or three hundred bucks yeah there was a time when i thought um that if i kind of had to start all over again i would sort of just have one modern go-to watch that I'd wear most of the time. But then if I really wanted to kind of collect something, I would focus on a theme. And I think at the time, uh, you know, I was kind of enamored with the twin crown uh, super compressor case dive watches and just thought, you know, there, there were so many, just like there are, you know, skin divers from different brands that it would be kind of fun to have sort of a focused theme to the collection, you know, albeit you know, maybe a little one track or a little boring in some people's minds. But it seemed like kind of a neat sort of thing where, you know, just over the years, you just sort of keep your eyes open for it. And if one comes yeah. along, you, you pick it up. But uh, yeah, whenever I see those kind of single mark collections, yeah, I marvel in the sheer lunacy of that pursuit. Yeah. Like, I like it. I, that That's a different level of crazy or a different variety of crazy. Yeah. But I don't think it's for me when I see it with cars. I don't quite get it. Like, I understand someone wanting, you know, some very wealthy person wanting all of Ferrari's flagship cars, 288 all the way through the LaFerrari. I get that. Yeah. But then you find, like, you know, like even like uh, like Magnus Walker, the 911 collector yeah. in LA, who has, I think he's, he's trying to get one of every year of an air-cooled. Huh. That's a lot of really similar cars. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not the right thing to do. I mean, if you can do it, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a special type of passion. Yeah. And uh and I, I don't know necessarily like I like the, I like that variety of going from something as different as an EXP2 to the Doxa to um you know my one of my other favorites is the Bremont Solo. Yeah. These are remarkably different watches. Yeah. And uh and I, I like that, but I do I do always, like even when you see like a talking watches where the, it's all military watches. <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, I get it. Like uh like that that yeah. took some forethought. Yeah, yeah. But then you you also kind of wonder, like, how many watches did you own and buy before you got into collecting military watches? Maybe this is like 
a more advanced right. an evolution that you and I haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. Maybe you're almost there. You're just going to become a guy that just has docs. <laughs> well, and I think I, I, maybe those people, um, it, maybe there's a, maybe there's an ease to it. Maybe maybe it's easier because it's focused. It's very focused, and so you, you aren't tempted by the max. You're bill only going on the, one or two dive forums or one or two yeah. you know military forums or something. You're you know you're and you're buying from the same four or five other guys who are crazy like you. Yeah, yeah. It's kind <laughs> of like a, my my friend Myron who who has the 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 Hamiltons that I wrote about for Hodinkee, You know those little yeah, yeah, Hamilton yeah. field watches. It's he he knows you know you can probably set up a very focused sort of search on eBay or on the watch recon and kind of you know just check it every now and then. So yeah, it's uh, I guess there are some upsides to that. Um, yeah. Cl- no matter how you cut it, though, collecting is a fairly crazy thing. Like stamps to yeah, what whatever people are into. Like it's it's a weird it's a weird um, like side product of of I think general humanity. Yeah, where you you form this weird bond with things that exist entirely. Like I mean, with watches, we don't need them, and they definitely don't need us. Like there's no there's no symbiotic relationship at the product level. Right. It's just emotional. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a strange and, and wonderful thing, but it's not. And I like that it's not something that uh, I don't think either of us came to with any sort of a decision. Yeah, like you said, I kind of just wanted a watch, and now, however many years later, you have several watches and a life built around at some metric watches. Yeah, and uh, and I'm kind of the same way. Like I my, my I had a Columbia Field watch. The battery died, mm-hmm. and I started looking into buying another watch, and then the way life works is that was like 15 years ago or whatever i blinked yeah and now we're here yeah yeah a yeah. podcast on un- untold untold sums of uh, money <laughs> spent on watches that i kept for days sometimes <laughs> and uh and and a living yeah at some at some level taken from from the uh from the the you know the rock and the hard place yeah i um i, I guess another theme that that i've come to realize about myself is that i tend to gravitate towards brands or, or watches um, that have some I don't want to say link to history but sort of a connection that 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 hooks me or inspires me so for instance yeah. you know doxa has been through ups and downs over the years with various company ownerships and that sort of thing but at, at, in its essence if you look at your wrist at this 50th anniversary piece or a black lung or whatever you see this heritage you see 1967 adventure diving you know the, these watches and the whole kind of history sort of is imbued in that watch. Um, whereas something like a Bremont, I have a, a nice connection with, you know, the owners of the company. Um, I, I like their story. Um, I like my Rolex Submariner because of all the great old National Geographic ads with Rolex and the kind of the history of the Submariner um, and the Explorer, you know, on Everest and all these things. I, it's it's kind of the reason why I don't tend to wear or own at least for any length of time, a lot of the micro brands that that kind of pop up that might look like something else or might be you know beautifully done. For um, sure, the exception to that might be Helios because you know I've met Jason, um, and and there's kind of this personal connection and and you I've kind of gotten a glimpse into the you know behind the scenes and met the guy behind it. So mm-hmm. it's either there's a personal connection with the brand or or kind of some attachment or sort of this link to history. Um, which is why I, you know, I like having a Speedmaster and the Submariner and um, the Doxes. Um, yeah, there's kind of this loose theme that runs through all of them. I think that's kind of universal for certainly for watches. Look at how hard brands are trying to leverage their history now. Yeah, 
to get that same effect from people who maybe like like I mean that uh, someone I follow on Instagram the other day, you know, put up a, a story just asking, like, does anyone under 30 care who Steve McQueen was? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. It is. Yeah. And that's if you if you don't follow Hannah Elliott, you should follow Hannah Elliott. Yeah. Uh, auto writer for Bloomberg. And uh, she does a great job. And and I thought she had a really good point. Like, I only vaguely like I know who Steve McQueen is. And, and, and I think he had excellent taste in cars and he was in some great movies, but I don't really care. Yeah. Like if a watch was his, it doesn't, that wouldn't like make me want it that much more. Yeah. Yeah. That like, that's what these companies are after. And and that's probably why, you know, why Rolex doesn't really deal in, in the vintage world. Yeah. They don't want to compete with their own product. Right. And, and, and you have to, at some point, there's probably some math that, you know, that's their biggest competitor. Modern Rolex's biggest competitor is vintage Rolex. Vintage Rolex. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy, but like to your point people are buying you know your interest level is connected with these historical roots some of which you were a part of and some of which you weren't yeah like some of which you might have experienced like various elements of nasa or things like that Mm -hmm. and other others that you weren't but the stories are compelling because of who you are yeah and yeah i think that's that's i think that that little pocket of it is what's shaping a lot of the watch industry right now and what might leave a lot of the watch industry looking kind of strange in a few years right when the vintage inspired thing goes away yeah or becomes less appealing or you know like trends change and that's a trend right now so i don't think it's a stretch by any means to say that the the trend will change and it's going to leave a lot of brands talking about their heritage and their legacy to a bunch of people who are either grown very tired of it or just don't care right yeah like you you talk like i adore cars i love old cars a lot but you talk to like my younger siblings who are quite a bit younger than me and they don't care about cars at all and they certainly don't care about old cars. Right. Well, I've always it's wondered a, like it's a microwave with wheels, right? Like you, <laughs> it, like it doesn't like does it get me to my job? Does it get me to the to the to the concert? Does it get me home whatever? Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've always wondered um how long Omega can kind of lean on the the moon landing. Um, with a Speedmaster, they do it every year, yeah. and and at some point that's going to be you know now we're talking, you know, fifty years ago. I mean, pretty soon it's going to be seventy five years ago, and and I, you know I don't you know, I hate to say it, but you know most of those astronauts are 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 dead or will have died, and and you know to to bring them out at events and and talk about this stuff, it becomes less and less relevant. Uh, sadly, because I'm a huge fan of that stuff, but uh, yeah, yeah I'll sure. be curious to see. Yeah, it. it- there's no way to predict that kind of thing, obviously, but I, I definitely think it's a lessening impact over time. Fewer yeah. people, fewer people will have an emotional, like a firsthand or even a secondhand emotional connection with that happening. Yeah, with that event. Yeah, in time, and and everyone, you know, younger people, younger buyers will have moved on to being fascinated with other things. Right, and and that could be what celebrities wearing the watch, or it could be you know some some amazing thing that we didn't really you know that you couldn't predict whether it's it's a new age in space travel or whatever yeah hopefully it's interesting things and not like what celebrities yeah wore wore what watch or or you know what dj's got a watch on or something like that hopefully it's it's something a little bit more rooted with the the history of uh of like watches and adventure yeah yeah i i think you know kind of to you know bring this around to kind of a closing point um i i think I would almost consider myself a a one watch or two watch person kind of disguised or in the body of someone who's a collector. Um, 
almost in spite of myself. I, I think I, I don't really like that sense of getting up in the morning and opening up a watch roll and seeing six watches to choose from. I, I, I really would love to be that person who only has one or two that you put on, whether you're going hiking or going out for dinner or you're yeah. going diving and you just pick the one that works and you only have two to choose from. It's it's the reason I like travel and you take one watch and sometimes yeah. I'll take two, but usually I just take one and it feels so good. And I, I don't know that I'll ever get back to that point because like you mentioned, I, I also hate selling watches. So I'm probably mm-hmm. going to be stuck with the ones that I have for quite a long time. But um, I don't know. I, I, I think I, I envy the one watch person. I love that lifestyle. I love that notion. Um, and I think you and I are alike in this. We wear what we, we buy watches to wear and use. And totally I think that's agree. kind of that ethos of, of the one watch guy is just to, to own it and wear it and, and build stories with it. And like the other thing is like, I think like, like with, like with the, the fellow you bought the second T graph off of. Yeah. If you were, if you were to imagine the type of person that you like using a watch, yeah. is it, a, is it a guy who has 70 or 80 amazing watches that are kept in a safe <laughs> right. And he and he wears them. I'm not saying like he doesn't wear them or whatever. And he appreciates them and he loves them. All of that. I'm not being disparaging simply because it's a person of means that loves watches. Yeah. Or is it this guy that bought a Doxa when he was 17? Yeah. Dove yeah. with it, wore it, loved it. It was his, and then and then you were able to get that. I think there's you know I think like yeah. it's it's that it's that both. And then the only space where you kind of see both is where you thread that needle with like the uh, the Newman Daytona. Oh right, and where that the appeal and the value is so high, where it kind of threads, you, where it kind of ties in multiple elements of this: the celebrity aspect, the part that he was actually a watch fan. Yeah, like it wasn't just that he had the one watch or that was his daily watch or whatever, but like he liked watches. So there was some um, enthusiasm and knowledge that went into the decision to go with that uh, Daytona. Right, and you cross that with the fact that it's the perfect watch for collectability of Daytona and early Daytona. Yeah. And uh, and you get fifteen and a half million dollars or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 what a cra- it's a cra- like watch collecting at any level is is pretty bonkers and and it gets pretty crazy when you start to stack on, you know, ima- imagine what an actual moon speedmasters were. Oh yeah, yeah. Or the the right Cousteau watch. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, there, there's still a few of these kind of Grail sport watches out there in the ether. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they won't have the same proof that the Newman one had. Yeah. Uh, as far as you know, achieving that sort of value because it was such a uh, uh, a thing, and and obviously it was hugely hyped by the enthusiast community and and blogs and and Phillips and 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 all of that. But uh, it, it's it's an it's an incredible thing at any level the the sort of collecting side. So yeah. I would say that if you're in this and you're listening and you're like these guys have just rambled for forty minutes and didn't really provide a lot of insight i'd say yeah that's probably a fair assessment <laughs> um but buy buy what you like right now buy what you can afford to experience uh learn uh, if you're just getting into this or you're comfortable with it learn the buy and sell process you know get into watch you see get enough uh posts to be able to post on the sales forum start to learn the etiquette and the process and develop your tastes if you have friends with watches that saves you having to buy them Right. Go, hang out hang out with them, wear them, you'll understand very quickly I think if you don't if you do or don't like a watch. You can also, you know, develop a relationship with a salesperson at an AD where they don't mind you dropping in on your way home from work and maybe trying a couple pieces on. 
that's part of the math. I don't think it's something that like, like if, if you go into an AD and, and the salesperson literally has no time to speak to you, then find a different AD. But I think generally speaking, part of the math of watch purchasing is you have a handful of visits where you're just kind of developing an idea of what you want. Yeah. Um, and if the store doesn't have time for that, then they're not a good store. Right. Um, so, and then beyond that, you know, if, if it's things that are harder to see in person, Zins, Doxas, um, Nomos, mm-hmm. then those are scenarios where you might have to buy one. Yeah. You know, buy it at a price that you can sell it for or close enough to. And then, then whatever the difference is in those two numbers is the cost of, of kind of expanding your mindshare for personal taste. Yeah. And I would, I would add that, um, unless you're buying or collecting for investment, which is a, a dubious, uh, sort of ambition yeah. anyway, um, buy what, buy what you like to look at, you know, so much of watches is, is a visual sort of appeal. Um, certainly the, the intangible sort of background of a brand or a specific watch and its use plays into it. But, um, you know, watches are by and large, pretty high quality these days. You're, you're, um, to compare one versus the other and what's better and what's not, um, can be really splitting hairs. I always just tell people, and I just encourage people just, what do you really like to look at? You know, what, what makes your heart sing when you look at your wrist and you just watch that hand go around? Um, yeah. that's going to make you the happiest. It, it certainly has for me. And it took, you know, it took a, a few stumbles over the years of, uh, you know, thinking, oh, I need to get this one and not that one. Um, but I, I've moved beyond that and, and I'm just happy with, uh, with whatever I look at these days on my wrist. Yeah, I, I fully agree. You got to you got to buy what you like, what what works for you, and uh, and you have to accept that occasionally you'll buy something that doesn't match. Yeah, and uh, sell it or give it to a friend or whatever your scenario is, and move on. Yep. Just watches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about some final notes? Yeah, perfect. All right, I'll go first. So I've got uh, I've got two car ones, both car stories, uh, both in my opinion pretty compelling and really kind of bonkers cars the first one is uh is a car that you you would know if you're pretty crazy deep into porsche uh but this is um the story of of uh, a guy who bought uh, a one of six zero mile oh my god street legal 962 cr wow which is a uh, a conversion that was done by chupin from a 962 le mans car to a road car huh. So the uh, the guy who bought it is a guy named Matthew Ivanhoe who runs uh, an exotic and high end classic dealership called the Cultivated Collector. He's on Instagram. It's a great follow. They've had some really fantastic cars kind of come through uh, through that one. If I remember correctly, it was a DB4 or a DB5 that was pretty amazing. I mean, nothing holds a candle to this thing. Hyper rare. You know, they made almost none. This one was never actually driven. Um, and, and there's nothing like this car. I mean, six of them were made and, you know, about 25, something like 25 years old. And it's a carbon monocoque body. And it was, uh, made by, so that the Chupin part is a, a Porsche racing driver named Vern Chupin. And, you know, originally they, they claimed these things were like in the range of one and a half to $2 million somewhere in there. And it's just like to, to have something that was, um, this rare and undriven, it kind of makes me sad. Yeah. Because yeah. like imagine imagine what it is to drive this thing. Yeah. But also now to know that it's kind of in the hands of someone who will take it to car shows and kids can see it and maybe I'll get to see it at like the quail or something like that also makes me very happy. Because otherwise, you know, a court, you, I'll, I'll link the, the story from the drive 
uh, kind of gives a little bit of background on the vehicle and how who it bounced around between. And, and it kind of just was off the scene for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So even if they aren't going to drive it, um, which I like part of me understands not driving something that's essentially priceless yeah, or as close to priceless as you could be. Um, cause obviously he bought it, so it's not priceless, but who knows what it actually is worth. Yeah. And, and then now, uh, you know, now it's going to be showing up at stuff and they, they let it come to Lufkakult, which was just a little while ago in LA, this amazing, uh, typically air cooled, uh, Porsche show. Uh, done by Patrick Long and, and a handful of others, and, and they gave this one kind of a pass, despite the fact that it's water cooled, um, to uh, to come to the show. So uh, a bonk, a really bonkers story, a good read. It's it's not an especially long write up, but I'll throw it in the uh, in the show notes. And uh, yeah, the nine six two CR. You know, I, I had seen like a photo of it, and uh, I didn't know the Chupan side of it. I just knew that it was called the nine six two CR. So to have one kind of surface in a high profile manner, uh, all really cool. Yeah, I. It's funny you mentioned this. I I follow the cultivated collector on Instagram, and I now I'm looking at his feed, and I I have seen that car and some of his photos, and, and it's it's really wild looking, and I, I didn't know it the backstory. Do, it doesn't look real. Yeah, so I, I want to read that story, but um, it, it's an interesting final note to follow up an episode that we talked about collecting and how we kind of tend to collect things that we like to wear and use. <laughs> and here's somebody who's yeah. bought this incredible vehicle with zero miles that that will never get used. It's it's both. It's fascinating and it's also a little bit frustrating. Um, but uh, yeah, this is like the, this is like opening a safe up in, in a, an old apartment in Zurich and finding a four one one three. Yeah, split split second chronograph. You know, there's twelve of those. Yeah. It, it's worth several million dollars. Yeah, and uh, and and I understand why you would want to be very precious about the way that it is. And and to be honest, I think that if it's a scenario where they're, they're going to take it to car shows and people will get to see it and take pictures of it and learn about yeah. it, then uh, I guess I can live, like, I guess theoretically you could live with the idea that it's not going to be true. Yeah. Does, does rolling a car on and off a trailer, does that add something to the odometer? I mean, is it to that level I, of it's terror? A, it's a good I, question. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. And I also don't know like what, what sort of odometers in, a Le Mans car that's been converted to yeah, uh yeah to a road car yeah. huh like I, I guess you don't I guess they're not measuring hours on the engine like you might for a race right. car and I suppose could you start it up and rev the engine or is that sacrilegious I, I, I assume not yeah. I don't wow. know wow I, amazing it's cool super cool car I mean it just looks it just looks incredible yeah, yeah. wow like a spaceship wow Oh, that's a great story. So what do you got for us? Well, I'm at the exact opposite end of the spectrum with my first one. It's uh, There's a guy, a, a British explorer named Alistair Humphreys. And, and Alistair, over the years, has done some interesting stuff. He, he was kind of the um, person who coined the phrase micro-adventures, which I'm a huge proponent of. It's kind of this notion of just, you know, go out the door on a weekend and camp in your backyard under the stars. And that's a micro-adventure sure. or... Um, you know, do a uh, paddle down the uh, down the Los Angeles River or or whatever, wherever you live, and you know the, the sort of idea that adventures don't have to be grandiose and expensive and far away. And um, he produced this uh, didn't produce. He kind of starred in and wrote the text, uh, the voiceover for uh, a video on YouTube. It's about four or five minutes long. It's called Wilderness, and it was. Um, Filmed predominantly, I think, in Wales or Scotland, kind of in the the hills uh, over there. Very moody, um, beautiful scenery. Um, And and it's kind of accompanied by this 
very um, sort of philosophical voiceover about kind of the power of, of just getting out, just getting out for a hike and, and kind of very the power cool. of wilderness. And, um, you know, I think with uh, everybody's kind of busy lives and, um, you know, you and I are always sort of lamenting the fact that we can't just get out and go camping uh, as often as we'd like. And, and I think this is kind of a, it's, it's both a little, um, you know, it gives me a sense of yearning to watch something like this because I haven't been in the woods for a while. But uh, mm-hmm. it's also very inspirational and kind of a nice break from from a busy day to watch that. Oh, that's very cool. It's a good selection. Yeah. So my second is a piece by Hannah Elliott, who I mentioned briefly earlier from Bloomberg. And it's uh, the story of a guy who actually took uh, one of my favorite cars, which is a, a Dino, a Ferrari Dino. And he spent an additional million dollars. Uh, essentially making like a singer-esque sort of outlaw version of the Dino. So it's on a wide body. It's got closed headlights, uh, fully redone interior, uh, carbon fiber, like engine cover. The engine is up uh, nearly uh, double in power. I I really just recommend people go and read the story because they're going to actually produce now 25 of these uh, Dino's. And he calls it a, uh, a Dino Monza 3.6 Evo. Huh. And uh, I'm sure it's not the kind of thing that Ferrari's that excited about. But what, <laughs> I, what I would ask you to do is, and I'll put both in the show notes, and there's actually a photo in here of uh, that shows an, an, like a, a stock Dino and this modified Dino. Yeah. Um, go take a look at that photo because I think at first, especially because this modified one is black, you don't immediately see the difference. Mm-hmm. Take a few minutes, especially if you're a Dino fan or a vintage Ferrari fan, to take a few minutes just to kind of take in the photos. Obviously, read the piece. Hannah did a great job with it, and it's a story that, that got picked up a bunch of other places because other people weren't writing about this car. Yeah. And uh, and it's the brainchild of, of this one guy who owns uh, like a jewelry business, uh, hmm. Hing Wa Lee Jewelers, hmm. this guy David Lee. And I think what he's done with this car, while I'm sure purists will have a problem with it, it looks so beautiful. I mean, the top shot is a profile photo with the with the roof removed. Yeah. And the car is on... The wheels are perfect. The f- slight fender flare is incredible. Yeah. I mean, this is one... This The Dino was already a beautiful car. Yeah. But this guy must have such a, a, a visual aesthetic developed to be able to see what the car was missing yeah. in his mind and, and take it to this level. I, I don't have to say anything more. Show notes, take a look if you're into a, into a, a vintage car like this. It's just so cool what they did. And it's a car that, you know, one day I hope to see again. He said in, in the piece he's planning to bring it to Quail. So, you know, hopefully I'll make it out to Quail again this year for Pebble Beach and, and get a chance to see it and take some photos then. What an incredible thing. And what a cool project. Like if you're if you're a, a, a wealthy car collector, Yeah, I love this kind of stuff. Yeah. Because nobody else has that, and the response has been so good, he's going to make it like as a side business. Like Amazing. They're going to make a bunch more. Those wheels and, are wild. Aren't they? Oh, oh beautiful. The yeah. car looks great. And you see that picture down below where it's next to a white one. Yes, yeah. And so, like it, oh, it looks somehow more Ferrari, the black one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fantastic. Gorgeous. Nicely done. Uh, nicely done piece by Hannah, and, and, uh, and a uh, really, really cool car. You want to take us home? Yeah, um, I'll close out with uh, my second note here. It is um, kind of a combination of things here. The, I mentioned earlier my upcoming trip uh, where I'll be diving with Laurent Balesta, who is, um, if you don't follow him, he just joined Instagram and just started popping up some unbelievable underwater photos, uh, many of which are from his recent book, which is called 700 Sharks in the Night. 
Um, it was a book that I was uh, given by Blanc Pan at Basel World and have really enjoyed um, reading it and looking through it. Um, I'm not sure where it's available for sale or if it will be. I imagine it will be, um, but I couldn't find it on Amazon or, or even on a website. Um, but um, we're going to put a link in the show notes to uh, an article on nationalgeographic.com. It's a kind of an excerpt from a magazine story that he wrote about this experience of diving at night in Fakarava to observe the, the grouper spawning and kind of the feeding frenzy that resulted when you get 700 gray reef sharks kind of prowling and wow. feeding at night. And uh, his photography is stupendous. The, the, the work is incredible. They use really uh, cutting edge uh, lighting systems and uh, very high speed cameras. And um, it, it's truly amazing um, to see his work. So we'll link out to the, uh, to the magazine article here. There's a little bit of video with it as well. And, uh, and you should definitely follow Laurent Balesta on Instagram as well. So that's what I got. And I'm sure I'll have more to report about uh, Laurent and meeting him and diving with him uh, in our next show. Well, that sounds great. As always, thanks so much for listening. You can hit the show notes for more details and you can follow us on Instagram at Jason Heaton and at J.E. Stacy, And you can follow the show at The Grey NATO. If you have any questions for us, please write thegraynado at gmail.com and please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts. Music throughout is Siesta by Jazzar via the Free Music Archive. And we leave you with this quote from Charles Bukowski, who said, The problem with the world is that the intelligent are full of doubts, while the stupid ones are full of confidence. <laughs> <laughs>